Hello and welcome to How To Medieval, the how-to where two guys show you how to do it between the two of them. I am Ari. And I'm Matt. Welcome back. So we are going to be doing part two of a camping series of two of X. I'm not, we're not quite sure where we're going to end with this, but we realized, you know, Todd and I realized in the beginning when we started our camping episode that it was going to take more than just one episode to go over. And we hit most of the how to survive, as in literally come home from an event alive kind of topics in the first chapter. And now Matt and I are going to go into one of the types of camping that is available to medieval reenactors when they go to events and ways to really excel at that particular type of camping. So how, what, what is the best way to describe this type of camping, Matt? Well, I really think the best way to describe this camping would be it's a medieval glamping. Yeah. <laughs> For those so, of you who don't know what glamping is, glamping is that sort of glamour camping or glamorized camping uh, that took became popular a couple of years ago. I like to equate it to the difference between the person who goes to a campground in a tent that fits in their backpack and the people who go RV camping. And neither one is better than the other. They're different and they achieve very different functions. And those who like to do it by the skin of their teeth and bootstraps kind of camping look down on those who bring their satellite TV and Xbox with them. And those who go and enjoy the outdoors but in a different level of comfort may also look down on the, the dirty campers, but they both achieve very different functions. And we see the glamping style, the the RV style camping a lot at medieval events. And this this happens for a number of different reasons. And we're not here to to judge the camping. We're just here to help you if that's the type of camp out you're going to do, do that to the best of your ability. Because if you're going to do anything, we want to do it really well. Now the scenarios you see these most in are ones that I'm familiar with. Uh, which are display events, like you go to a timeline or you go to a historical reenactment that's designed for the public. People tend to bring a lot more stuff to those because you want to put on a good show than they would if they were just camping a little more either privately or, or closer to medieval. The other version is one that you're much more familiar with, Matt, which is like long-term SCA events. That's right. Um, yeah, the SCA has you know, wars and events that happen over the place of a weekend, or sometimes like the biggest one that happens in Pennsylvania, uh, Penzik War, that goes on for two whole weeks. And, and that really is a premier glam medieval glamping event, because you have people who literally build small villages to live of tents to live in for two weeks. They're, they're living there for two weeks. And that that can it can almost historically be equated to like the field of cloth, the field of cloth and gold, the the large French encampment that were in during Henry VIII's time frame, where they built basically a city out of tents. And I want to go back and and explain a little bit why we refer to it as medieval glamping instead of camping, and it's really more medieval esque camping because historically the people didn't do this. They didn't camp like this. As, as far as we know, camping was not a recreational thing. They didn't do it for fun. If you were traveling and you had the money, you probably would find lodging someplace at an inn or a house. If you were poor or on pilgrimage or something, you'd probably just wrap yourself up in a cloak and fall asleep on the side of the road somewhere or find a nice tree to be under. So a lot of this what we do at events, either like those timeline events or the SCA events, we're doing it for comfort and we're doing it for show because we want to show off our cool stuff. And some of the stuff is really cool. So, and like Ari said, there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's, and you do it to the level that you can do it and want to do it. But like you said, if you're going to do it, let's, let's, let's be awesome at it. And I really understand the, the desire to, if you're going to be in a place for a long period of time to do it at the, utmost of comfort because if you're uncomfortable and that sort of misery is not part of the event then and not part of your experience that it's just going to distract you from what your real purpose there is whatever medieval experience you're looking to have 
And we make, as reenactors, countless concessions or small changes for our own personal comfort, safety, health. The reasons that we use or the reasons that we have to maybe stray away something from the most authentic possible to achieve an, an otherwise superior goal is perfectly acceptable. And so when we go to these events and we make these small concessions, as long as we understand the purpose behind them and the goal is something more, you know, it's also a medieval goal. It's not just serving our own ahistorical wants and we're not manipulating the time period to serve our own desires, but we're making small changes to how we practice our living history to achieve that living history goal, then those types of decisions are not only acceptable, but they're probably superior. So we go to these big events where we're either demonstrating to people or we're living in a you know a medieval tent city for a week or two weeks. What are we going to do that's above the subsistence level of surviving a camping event to achieve this grand scale medieval look and feel? You look and feel, that's actually a great point, Ari, because these large sort of tent cities we build to live in for the, for the weekend or the week or encampments, if you want to call them that, they're just foreign enough to us to pull us out of the modern uh, just enough to help us sort of get that medieval feel. And I, and I think that's one of the most important things of, of doing things like this, because we're doing it for an experience and having that just, just, enough to pull us out of the modern really does help. And then one of the number one ways to do that, of course, is the tent. And that's probably the biggest ticket item on any of the camping lists you're going to find for, for medieval glamping slash camping is the tent. If except for maybe your harness, a tent is going to be your largest expense in the medieval hobby. If you are going, no matter what your, your time period is or what your goal is, Short of buying a brand new harness, you're not going to end up spending more on any one item probably than your tent. Not that you can't find good, cheap tents, but if you're sitting down and looking to, you know, at budgeting your your full reenactment life, the, the largest dollar sign you're probably going to see is up there tied with a tent or a harness. Yeah. So this is a big decision and you should... You should put as much research into this decision as something that will cost as much as a tent does deserves. And there are levels like 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 everything we do. There are different levels. Um, you know, you can go for that huge round uh, wagon wheel spoke pavilion uh, with you know paint job all over it and and look like a grand noble uh, has been set up out there. Or, but then, you know, that's, that's going to cost you money. That's going to cost you probably a couple thousand dollars. Um, or if you want to scale it back a little bit, one of the longest in use styles of tent is the basic A-frame tent. That sort of white canvas or, or, or natural colored canvas, A-frame, almost like a large pup tent looking thing. And they use these going back from Roman times, uh, you know, through the Viking era, you know, Crusade era, all the way up almost into World War II. You could use a tent like this for any number of these, you know, reenactment scenarios. So if you want like something, if, if you're like me and you have sort of historical ADHD and, you, and you're bouncing back and forth between time periods all the time, a, a basic A-frame tent could be a great investment because you can use it for everything. Um, and you don't necessarily, a lot of people are like, well, I need to have something that's going to match, you know, what I'm portraying. Yeah, you do or you don't. I mean, if you're portraying a full, you know, a man at arms, don't feel bad if you've just got a, a basic, simple A-frame tent. I mean, that's, it's something that while, I mean, you have to remember, like I said, a man at arms probably wouldn't have been staying in a tent anyways. So, don't feel bad about not matching those. You are definitely out buying almost every impression if you get any type of tent at all, because oh, yeah. um, the, the, the average medieval person on campaign, if you think like a soldier on campaign, you slept in the woods, you slept in the, as I commented Bar. before, the recently vacated homes of the peasants you slaughtered in yep. the 
stables if the nobles got to the house first, underneath the wagon if it was raining. So any type of tent you get is probably going to outperform your impression. So don't worry so much about whether or not your tent fits your impression, because the truth is it probably does. The question more about whether or not you, if you get a tent is what is your personal comfort and space requirement, both how much space do you have to store and transport it and how much space do you really want on site? Because an A-frame tent can be as something as easy as a square piece or a rectangular piece of canvas that you can rig up between two trees with a rope and four stakes. Or it could be a more elaborate system of poles and ridge poles and 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 ways of building sort of a rigid structure that's then covered by canvas. And the amount of technology you want to put into your tent, so to speak, will give you a variety of different space and comfort. You know, how much room do you have to move around? How much room do you have for storage? Those are the the big decisions you should be making on these tents, really more than how does this fit my impression? And then I can hear the question now. This is probably one of the number one questions when it comes to tents. And that is, hey, I, I found this company called Stolpad. What do you think of those? Now, uh, personally, I don't have anything against Stolpads. They're really neat tents. They're, they're sort of reminiscent of what's called a, a Sibley tent, um, which was more of a 18th century, 19th early 19th century design, if I'm recalling it off the top of my head correctly. They break down really small. You can fit them in a compact car, and they're sort of completely enclosed. And they are canvas, so you do kind of get this canvassy, medieval-y feel off of them. They're, if you're just sort of doing, you know, a hobby, you know, uh, you know weekend warrior hobby type thing, of, you know, every once in a while you want a tent to go out, but you also might use it for modern camping. Oh, then a soul pad's a great way to go. Soul pads are still going to run you around $400. And, and, and for that price, you can get a nice A-frame tent as well. So really, like Ari said, it depends on what you want to get out of it. Also, before you buy any tent, before you buy anything, check with the, your group. If you're in a established reenactment group, they may have specific rules for what you you can and cannot use. And like the SCA doesn't necessarily have rules about that. Um, they, you know, pup tents are fine. You know, uh, soul pads are fine. You can go all the way up to that, that grand pavilion if you want to. But always check with your group to see what rules they may have because, you know, they may not allow a soul pad. They may say, yes, get the A-frame, but not the soul pad. And always just, like I said, double check with them first. And that's interesting you say because if you're not going to a group event on your own, like an so one of the big differences between like going to war with Penzik and going to a living history event like Day of Nights is that at both of them, you can go individually and set up your own little thing. But when you're doing living history presentations to like the public, there is an emphasis towards trying to create encampments that also would resemble a camp that would have existed. So you bring your own personal impression and you're doing your own demonstration to the public, but they sort of have a leaning towards trying to make the camp itself also look authentic. And so you do get this little bit of a desire towards a large tent that holds multiple people instead of a bunch of big tents that would have had multiple people in them, but they're all for individual people. And so if you're going with a group to something that's doing a demonstration or you're going with a group to an SDA event and you check in with somebody, it's also possible, say you haven't decided whether or not you're ready to buy a tent yet, that they might have like a barracks tent. So, for instance, I have this very large wedge tent that I used as my tent for a while, but I actually got a different tent that was smaller. It it looks a little nicer and it it's supplanted my go to events tents, but I still own this other tent. And if I were to go to an event and someone were to, to message me and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to Days of Nights, so you know, I'm doing a late 14th century impression. Do you have space for me? Well, I could throw that wedge tent in the in the trailer, which I otherwise may not have taken with me. And now there's room for two to five people, depending on how much stuff they bring to have a place to habitate, and we're not adding a bunch of extra tents to an encampment that probably wouldn't have had more than one or two. 
So if you interface with a group, you might have a lot of your problems solved for you ahead of time. Yeah, exactly. Groups, groups always, you know, we, we try to help each other out and do stuff like that as much as we can, because that's what keeps the group working and, 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 you know, moving forward. So, but definitely, definitely talk with your group, figure out what you want and, and take your time. Uh, it's not something you have to rush into, especially if your group has like a loner tent or, or a, a barracks tent, or even like one of, one of my favorite experiences ever was I went to an, an SCA event and I hadn't intended to stay the night. So I didn't bring my tent. I didn't bring really much of anything. And I ended up staying the night and I had friends who had set up their tent for a specific purpose for the next day, but had left the site for the night. So I just snuck into their tent and <laughs> crashed <laughs> on the floor. Um, and they didn't have anything in it. It was just, it was literally just their tent. So it was just me sleeping on the floor wrapped up in my, my cloak, but it was great. I woke up the next morning to this inside this absolutely gorgeous pavilion with the sun beat coming through it and illuminating the paint job they had done on the roof. And it was just, it was a, one of the most memorable experiences I've ever had in my life. It was a lot of fun. It's a the very medieval outlaw. The only thing you didn't do was steal an egg out of the coupon when you left the <laughs> household as you ran to the the road before getting caught no that's really that's really neat and i know some people do that some people will bring a tent a display tent i know that labelle company has tents that they use specifically to put their armor displays and a couple of their other material culture displays in both because it gives a little bit of like a if you put it inside the tent and it's kind of a semi a historical board but it's an educational tool and it's not sitting out in the encampment that helps kind of preserve the authenticity of the encampment. Yeah. And it also protects all of their fancy stuff from, say, the rain that likes to happen when you're sitting outside. Exactly. So, you know, there's there's definitely things like that that may be available to you. But now let's assume that this person who is going through here has decided on buying a tent. The tent that they buy is something that they they're comfortable with. They've researched it. They know that it fits their time period. It fits their impression comfortably enough and it's going to have enough room for them to to move around put their stuff in if they desperately need to be able to stand up straight like i do they have one that's tall enough to allow them to do that and they know they have the the space to take it to or from because they followed all the basic rules that we talked about in part one what do they do next with this tent to really up the medieval both look and feel and that sense of presence, because one of the things I like to do with like the mentality I have behind an encampment is there might just be me and one or two other people, but there's ways to create the impression through the use of material culture to imply a larger group of people. So you've got a knight in his retinue that might realistically between camp followers and vassals and the ostler and the men-at-arms and the archers that he brings and all of their affiliated unwashed masses, the, the numbers of which have never been recorded because they were just peasants. No one cared, right? So there could be 20, 30 people in this encampment, but you're just going with a couple of your guys and you don't have 30 people there to present. How can we go about taking this encampment and making it look like there's more people there? And okay, so maybe they're all out watering the horses and that's why there's only five people here that you can see right now. But it you know, based on looking at the environment around you, well, there's clearly a whole group of people. This is definitely a war campaign. What are the kind of things that people should look into as a way to furnish and populate their canvas apartment? So one of the, the probably the next biggest thing you could do for, for furnishing, especially if you want to show it off, because people really think these are cool, is a bed. And there's a couple of different ways you can do that. You can go with like a slat bed or a rope bed. Or you can even just go as the basic sort of what they call a pallet. And I actually know people who have made up like straw pallets, they called them, to put in, in their tents and sleep in them, but also to show off to the public to be like, you know, this is what they might have slept on during, during the time. So beds would be a, another big way to up it up. Might not make it seem like there's more people there, but it definitely ups your comfort level and ups your sort of glamping cred if you have a, if you have a bed. And there's two really good things that any type of bed does for you. And it allows you to hide a real mattress, not a bag full of straw. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to making concessions for comfort, that's one of the big ones. The, if you're not used to sleeping on the ground, that can be 
an incredibly uncomfortable sleeping arrangement to the point where you might not actually sleep if you aren't used to doing that. Being able to sleep on a really hard surface is something you kind of have to get used to. And you can develop the ability to adapt to it. But if you went from your feather bed at home to the ground on Friday night, you may be in for a world of hurt the next day, depending on you know your personal health considerations. So pallets and rope beds are really good at hiding different types of mattresses. I, I saw once that there was, it looked like a pallet, just the exterior was the wood slats of a pallet. And it had little bits of like linen draped over it so that you couldn't see straight underneath it. And in it, they had set one of those fold out cots. They didn't have an air mattress they needed to blow up. They didn't have anything they needed to roll out or set up. They literally just pulled out one of those foldy cots and it fit just flush with the edge of the top of the pallet. And you couldn't tell the difference once you threw some linen over the top. That's really cool. Um, And also, you said not just hiding a mattress, but you can hide other things under the bed. I mean, I know that I keep a lot of my gear in plastic tubs because they're convenient. They keep the water out uh, and they're easy to clean. You, you don't want those laying around your camp. So you shove them under the bed and put a blanket over it and nobody, nobody sees them. Nobody's the wiser. And that helps you. So I know I talked a little bit in episode one about the difference between at a, at a public event, and this is a public event only kind of thing, whether or not you want to have an open or a closed tent. And I, I personally like a closed tent because it gives me a, a bit of privacy. I can go in there and not only can I be away from the public for a minute to decompress, but I can also be in a space that I know is mine and I haven't had a bunch of human beings pawing around in. And so if you are inclined towards an open tent, though, being able to say hide a chest underneath a bed is a much superior alternative to the practice of throwing like a canvas tarp over the top of a Rubbermaid tub. And so, okay, it's disguised, sure, but what is that square thing underneath a canvas tarp supposed to be in a medieval context? Whereas if it's under a bed, a medieval bed looks, regardless of whether or not something's underneath it, exactly like what a medieval bed is supposed to look like. Exactly. And and the easiest thing you can do is what you just mentioned, is hide things. Throw blankets over it, throw cushions on things, put them under a tarp, stick it behind your tent so so where people don't go behind. Those are some of the easiest, easiest things you can do just to up the look slightly. Um, Because the more we remove the modern and put the modern out of sight, the more, like I said, that that foreignness of the canvas is just enough to pull us into the moment. But yeah, you're right. You know, a, a Rubbermaid tub with a tarp over it looks like a Rubbermaid tub with a tarp over it. And how are you going to explain what that's supposed to be? And but making things to disguise them is even better, like the bed or a bench that you can basically put things under. A bench would be another great thing to have. One, because it gives you a place to sit down to put your shoes on, or if you're wearing armor, to put your, you know, put your armor on or rest it on. So. Now, something to be said about beds before we, we move along from them, since I think we've hit the end of the bed conversation, is talking about hiding things under the bed sometimes gives people the motivation to getting a bed that's taller than needed. So there are two types of tents and how the walls are structured architecturally. There are tents that use perimeter poles, and I'm not super well-versed on tents. I know there's some discussion as to whether or not perimeter pole tents or slouch wall tents are more or less, period. In in this context, I don't really care because people are going to buy perimeter pole tents no matter what, and they look fine from the outside. And so if you have a perimeter pole style tent, you're going to have very straight walls, like the walls of a building. But if you get a tent that is designed to stay up without perimeter poles, what you're going to find is that they have what are called slouch walls, where the walls are are held out at an angle. And what this does is it both creates opposing forces against either side of the tent, 
So instead of having to be stretched against these poles that are then distributing weight directly into the ground, you take and you create this TP effect, even if you have some more angle to the walls and, and two different angles to the walls based on whether or not you have a canopy and walls. But if you get a really tall bed and you have a slouch wall tent, where your bed hits the tent wall, because you don't want anything to actually physically touch the walls of your canvas, otherwise water will bleed through. Water runs off well, a good canvas, unless you touch it. And then that creates a spot where the water then leaks through into your tent. So the point where the edge of your bed meets the wall in a slouch wall tent will compromise some of your floor space because there's going to be more wall behind your bed than there otherwise would have been. So if you have a perfectly straight up and down wall and it doesn't matter how tall your bed is, you put your bed, you know, an inch away from the wall and that leaves you all that space inside the tent. But if your tent has a, you know, 30 degree angle to the slouch wall and you have a 24 inch tall bed, there's going to be a lot of space between the base of your bed and the base of the tent that goes unused. Now, that can be used for storage, but it also means it's going to push the bed into the space more. And depending on how wide your bed is, that can make your bed sort of conflict with ridge poles and your uprights and things. Mm-hmm. So it's important to know that if you have a slouch wall tent, it's actually a little more economic for space to have a lower bed, which then changes what kind of totes you might want. So a big tall Rubbermaid tub might not fit. But if you have a bed that's 12 or 18 inches tall instead of full height like a normal bed is and you want to get one of those bladder Rubbermaid tubs that are maybe a little longer but only a foot deep that might be a better situation for you but it it's a decision that's made based on the wall structure of your tent first so before you before you buy your bed you should definitely buy your tent and this also does it gives you an ability to be sort of creative in things too. I always had an idea for making what's called a monastic coffer bed, which is basically a, it sort of looks like a long coffin that you would sleep in, but actually building in under the mattress compartments, you know, for, for storage. Um, so basically the whole bed itself is one large box that you can put stuff in that automatically hides everything away anyway. I don't know how much you've you've traveled, but it, there's airports that have these little sleeping pods that you can rent, and they're they're the same kind of style. It's it's literally just a a small little closet box that it's big enough to sleep in. And yeah. those monastic coffin beds remind me of those, and they're really cool looking. I wouldn't want to lug one to and from an event. That sounds heavy. Yeah, you'd have to. I don't, that's why I've never <laughs> built one. <laughs> I couldn't you build it every like time. <laughs> well, so there's actually a really good point, Ari. Build it every time. Breakdown items for travel are something that are widely used. And you can actually, if you put some engineering into it or know some engineers or, or know people who are just really good woodworkers, you can make some really cool breakdown objects to go into your camp, like trestle tables and cabinets, uh, the bed itself chairs so there's any number of things that you can design to break down it's like i know people who fit an entire it's like an 18 foot round pavilion with poles the bed a trestle table a couple of glastonbury chairs and a storage cabinet they fit it into i think it was a honda fit anybody who knows yeah what a honda fit is it's it's like basically if you have the front end of a minivan and just the front end not nothing else just the just the driver's driver passenger <laughs> seat and then a small trunk on the end are you sure they didn't install tardis inside the back they might have they might That's have I, they, they did i believe they did have a um one of those cargo boxes that went on the top as well oh but, that there you go but they fit and, I, and they did eventually switch to a small pull behind trailer but still <laughs> most of it they fit Excuse me. Most of it, they fit into the back of this fit. And it was really impressive that they could do that. That's intense. I was pretty stoked that I managed to fit my whole encampment into a Mazda 6. But that's that's amazing because they had to bring people and I couldn't have. Like There was no room for people left once I had gotten all my stuff in that little car. So I have a, I have a Dodge Durango and I barely fit all my stuff in there. <laughs> that's good. 
Now you were talking about trestle tables and those are, I find to be one of those interesting bits of contentious reenactorism versus historical itemry things. And for those who aren't aware, a trestle table is a table where all three pieces of the table, when you think about it has four legs and a top, if the front two legs and the back two legs were separate pieces and the top piece was a separate piece, and you were to assemble it more like a board on top of sawhorses, that's what you get with a trestle table. And from what I understand is that trestle tables are the more historical option. However, there are lots of people out there who use different types of tables where the whole table is one constructed piece, or rather on-site reconstructed piece, and it's not three separate objects. And I have seen both used, and both look medieval enough Though I have noticed that trestle tables fall over easier since they are inherently not solid hooked together. There's no wedges or screws or bolts or anything. And you have to remember that a lot of those tables, you know, a a trestle table that's being set up for dinner in the great hall of a castle was going to be a lot more stable than us trying to put a trestle table together on the ground. So a lot of the things, like you said, we make somebody, we make these informed concessions, and one of the concessions we make is for stability because we don't want the table to collapse on us in the middle of us eating dinner. So, <laughs> or in the wind, or That's, in the wind, yeah. or somebody bumped into it, or a kid a bird, crawls under it, bird lands on it. <laughs> uh, you know, any any number of any number of reasons, but yeah, so. I think trestle tables are great. Uh, they they look great, and they they like I said, they they add that feel to the space. And one thing I think trestle tables provide that other built together tables don't, and this is depends on what your goal is with your aesthetic. Things like the fold up X chairs and the trestle tables, and anything that looks like it's easily disassembled or will fall apart if you look at it funny, they have a sense of portability that something you had to rebuild on site with or without maybe some power tools doesn't provide. And so a if you are putting together an encampment that looks like it's supposed to be semi-permanent, there are certain types of furniture that will give that impression more than if you're going to say this is this is a campaign encampment and we set it up yesterday and we're going to take it down in two days when we move on to the next village or when we move on to the next, when we finally get across the river after the rains cease or something. There are certain pieces of equipment and furniture that provide a different look and they give that sort of subconscious impression as to what the intent of your camp is. And neither one of them is necessarily more wrong than the other because we do know that we have examples of exterior furniture that was a little more well constructed so what is your application with it should guide which one you purchase or make or acquire in whatever way you do now something that you you, we've brought up a couple times now and sort of goes into what you were asking about how do you make it feel like there's more people there than there really are chairs having a, a couple of extra chairs around always makes it feel like there's more people who are there, but are just off somewhere. Plus, they're nice to offer to friends when they come over to your camp to visit at the end of the day. So chairs are always a great thing to have. And they can be, like you said, those fancy X chair, folding X chairs or the Glastonbury chairs. Even benches work. Boxes work. Stools. Stools have been around for, you know, a millennia. They, they work tool. They're just a basic three or four-legged stool. So but just having those extra things around makes it, makes it seem like there's more people there than there really are. True. And circling back around to what we were talking about in the beginning, the difference between trying to do like a painfully accurate encampment or a look and feel encampment, most medieval folk, you know, they wouldn't have a tent. They also wouldn't have a chair. And, you know, you sit on a log, you sit on the ground, you sit on a rock. But There is something that implies a group of people when you look at three or four chairs or one or two benches that even if a real populated encampment wouldn't have had those things, 
having a lot of chairs around, having a lot of benches around, having places for people to sort of like congregate or, or imply a sense of congregating around a communal space definitely gives that impression, especially if you're trying to get across that idea to the public and you want, you want to have as many shortcuts in their mind as possible. Those are definitely some really good things. And there's lots of different chairs out there that you can choose from. And they also have sort of a practical crowd control use too. If you are setting up to do a talk, you put some benches out that the public can actually sit on. There's that as well. Or you can, you know, if you want your tent open so people can look in but not go in, you can put your chair in the middle of the flap so they can't get by, but they can still see around it. You know, Mm -hmm. you can even sit there and welcome them as they as they approach. So there's more to just the look or the utility of them. You know, you can use them for different things. Those are some fantastic points. Definitely hurting sheep with barricades is pretty fantastic (laughs) use of any any piece of camp furniture, be it a table or a bench or a chair. And, you know, crowd management at a public event is a significant concern. You may or may not be bringing like swords, which people can kill each other with. And you don't necessarily want people to grab at until you're ready for them to interact with them. And you've got thousands of dollars of equipment that you don't necessarily want people bumping into or, or pawing through or falling into. So these ideas of being able to both create a medieval aesthetic and create a safe environment for people who are in your encampment is a really important concern. It is. Now, you mentioned bringing swords. And if here's a really good thing. If you want to make your encampment look like a military encampment, you're going to want to show off weapons, weaponry, weapon racks, having them around outside your tent, mobile ones that you can take the weapons off and move into your tent at night or break down and put away at night. You know, those are great to have. But just having these weapons on the rack, you know, having three or four spears or a couple of pole hammers or just even, you know, a few swords on the racks. One, people tend to not touch them if they're on the racks, especially if you have them behind a table or something like that or behind a couple of chairs. Two, they show off that you have them. People think they're cool. But and three, having multiple racks around with different stuff on it gives people a path to follow their point of interest. So they don't they're not just surrounding one table looking at one thing. And it also makes it look like there's more people there. That's true. And it combat sensory overload, if we're going to talk about just a presentation style, if you have three or four swords, maybe you want to maybe you want to showcase the different types of swords. You know, you want to showcase the difference between a long sword and an arming sword. You know, okay, so your your archer might be carrying this weapon, but his knight might be wearing this weapon. You can put those on one weapon, weapons rack, and you could have a conversation that's focused on this particular armament, and then you can move over and have either another comparison between a, a poleaxe and an English bill, and in such a way that if you just had a bunch of swords and spears and bills and poleaxes all on one rack, it can be a jumble of information that, that people might have a hard time parsing through when they're they're trying to get all of this visual information at once. And so having multiple weapon racks definitely does help you as a teaching tool. Now, if you're doing this encampment as a, this is my, this is my encampment at an SDA event, your presentation may not be nearly as important, but if you do have weapons that you want to bring with you because they, you like them, you want to show them off, you know your friends who you only ever see at this event will want to see them. A weapon rack is another way to keep add safety to any time you're not immediately in your encampment because you can tie weapons down to a weapon rack so that they don't blow over, they don't get knocked over, they don't get you know, you have you add a barrier to theft that can be useful in a way that say if you were to just take three or four bill bills and stow arms them in a in a tower like you would a, a bunch of rifles it's easy to just grab those and go or have them get knocked down or bumped into and they're harder to tie down so yeah that's i'm um, sca events the display is more for a personal gratification than a public gratification if you, if you understand what I'm saying, um, you know, you can take it 
to whatever level you want to, and you're not required to, but you can take it to whatever level you want to. And some people go, well, you know, they go really well into it. I, there's, especially at the larger events, there are people who build huge structures as part of their encampments to show off basically what they can do. And that they're really, really cool. It's like there's, I know at Penzik, there's one, either a kingdom or a barony or someplace that actually built a cathedral. And this is like a, like a huge, like vacuum formed plastic stain, huge rosette window, stained glass, you know, 50 foot tall cathedral that they built and put in place. Wow. And that was, that was sort of the main gate to their encampment. And then that's really going way, way, you know, out of the stratosphere above what you have to do. Yeah, that's but hyper glamping. That is hyper glamping. And, and that was really a, a, it's, I'm not trying to make the SCA sound narcissistic, but it's like, Camping in the SCA and having these fancy encampments is about showing off what you want to do, basically. It's, and there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, I love to show off, but it's not required. It really is a me saying, showing off, saying, I'm going to go super historical and that's what I want to do. And look at this, look what I'm doing. And yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. So we've got some places to sit. We've got some places to eat our food at. We've got a place to sleep. What's the next step? Do we want to take our encampment? We want to we want to show off a little more. We want to increase our our personal comfort with in a medieval aesthetic. What is another way that we can add to this camp that makes it feel medievally or either more populated or just more resplendent or more comfortable? A cooking area. Aha. So, and this actually cooking, the cooking area, the kitchen, if you want to call it that, is one of the not easier ways, but more documentable ways to go more historical. Because there are illustrations and, and written documents of these sort of camp kitchens throughout history. A lot of them more later era um, has more of it. But, you know, we have these sort of images of these camp stoves like as you call that they're suspended over fires so you have like a, you built like a, an a like a, almost like a swing set a frame that you're suspending you know pots over and things like that and at the very end it's uh you know you just pick everything up and it's gone a lot of that depends though on the rules of the site where you're camping because a lot of places won't let you have fires on the ground. You have to have the fire in something uh, like a portable fire pit or something like that. You can still build these, you know, sort of camp kitchens to go over them and use them. A lot of them just, you know, a simple, you know, rotisserie, uh, uh, fire rotisserie with a trammel hooker or something, you know, a bar going over the fire, your fire pit with a trammel hook or hooks to hang pots over. It adds to that medieval. It looks really cool. And it's easy. It's, it's rather easy to do. And it's, it's rather to a level documentable for what you're doing. And because of this documentation, though, it's a financial investment. Granted, all of these things are an increasingly burdensome financial investment. Well, burdensome is, it depends on how much you have to spend. But the more and more you, these things you throw in there, the, the bigger the, the ticket price is if you were to get this camp from the ground up. One of these things that you can get out of these really well-documented field kitchens is actual pieces of cookware like pauldrons and pipkins and pans and such, which have references in either archaeological find or in visual references like manuscripts and illuminations so it's it's a step above bringing a coleman camp stove or going and buying some cast iron stuff at the the camping section of walmart you yeah it's it's cast iron and if you don't you cover the the lid with enough coals it doesn't look like it says it has imprinted modern embossment on the top but you can actually get a pan that is meant not just to be used in a camp kitchen, but designed to function and look just like the pieces of equipment they would have in an actual camp kitchen in the 14th century. 
So not only is that a great way to spruce up your camp, but as you said, I mean, this is one of the best places to get some real historical artifact based material culture into your encampment. And it has some real historical artifact based experiences uh, too, because you, you actually have to put the time into using them. You can't just walk over, fire up your stove and, and fry up an egg. You got you to gotta plan out what you're going to make with these objects. Like I have a pipkin that I haven't used yet because I haven't had the time to really invest in, in learning how to use it and figure out what I want to make with it. I, I need to find the time I really want to use it because it's really, really cool. Uh, but if you're going to do camp cooking like this, and this could be a completely other episode. We, we'll have to yeah, write this we're one. definitely going to have to do a separate thing on camp kitchen and uh, camp or, cooking and because cook. that's a, its own thing. Yeah. So it, it takes time. If you want to do actual, like, you know, um, historically correct open fire cooking like this, it takes time. You can't just walk in, turn it on, heat it up quick and walk away. You know, you, you have to pay attention to it. You have to fiddle with it, work with it, tend it, uh, tend the fire, make sure the fire is not going out, not too hot. So it, it takes time. It takes practice. And it can be a lot of fun and very rewarding, but just you have to know going into it that it is something that you have to be committed to doing for that day. Committed to doing for that day. And as you said, committed to doing before the event, sort of like how in episode one, we referenced making sure that you test run all of your equipment. You get a new tent, set it up in the park once before you go to an event. Don't let the event, never let the event be the first time you use any new piece of equipment. <laughs> Always stress test it first. And that's really, and we'll go into it much more in our cooking episode, especially our field cooking episode, is that you have to know what you're doing ahead of time because camp cooking is not very forgiving whatsoever. However, setting up a field camp looks awesome. So we've managed to make the encampment look better by putting that camp kitchen in there, regardless of whether or not we know how to use it. Preferably figure out how to use it first or bring lots of cans of soup because that's my go-to, cans of yeah. soup. And if you... You have this camp kitchen and now you've got a comfortable bed to sleep in. You've got a you, protection from the weather. You've got places to sit. One of the things that I think really make a medieval camp feel more medievally is light. Ways to light up your camp at night. So the, the obvious way of lighting at night is the campfire in the middle, which is where your camp stove is going to be and you build that fire up and it, you know, it lights up the general area that you're camping in, but there's a lot of other methods for having light in the field. And it's more than just candles and lanterns. One of my favorite pieces of field lighting is it's a, it's like a little chalice, but it's made of terracotta kind of stone and you fill the top basin with, some sort of oil and then you you lay a wick into it and you hang the wick just off the rim and you light that and as the wick burns down you just sort of move the wick out and what i find i like most about it is that it requires tending and if you don't pay attention to it it'll go out because it's you have to keep moving the wick to allow more and more burn to happen and you can make it brighter or, or less bright based on how many wicks you put in there. If you put in two, three, four wicks, it'll be brighter, but it will go out if you don't tend to it. And I like the way that that sort of forces you to always be thinking in a medieval mindset. You know, it's, you know, I turn the light switch on at home. I don't have to think about like, there's no light switch crank that I've got to go after every 30 minutes to make sure that my lights stay on. It's just sort of light happens in the background, but in a campsite, you, know, you got to feed the fire logs or you've got to sit there and you got to fiddle with the wicks in your little brazier and it, i think it just sort of it's these little pings little repetitions of these are activities that were normal for people and as you said they're different enough for us now that it really helps transport me back in time i really like i think light at night the idea of how much work goes into keeping people lit in the night is a very medieval feeling thing Keeping people lit in the night. I think that's going to be another, that's going to be the title of our brewing episode. Oh, well, well that's a, <laughs> a whole different meaning of what I was going for. But yeah, I like so, it. I, I will put the disclaimer in here. 
fire and canvas, always pay attention. If you're around, if you're in a tent with an open flame, you, you've got to pay attention to it. Don't just leave it and walk off. You, you, you got to tend it, like Ari said. Um, yeah, never, never leave uh, unattended. Really, you shouldn't leave any flame unattended. You know, I talk yeah. about, oh, you have to sit here and tend that little wick. Well, there's a difference between, oh, you have to fiddle with this type of light source to keep it working. And, oh, there's a light source that you're able to ignore. You can, there's no real like oil lantern, like a hurricane lantern, like what we think of in later period. But they did have these handle holders that were lanterns and they were completely enclosed with cutouts to let the light through and a little door you open and close and it was just a candle inside. And even, even a candle is kind of a set and forget kind of light. But it's not something you should ever just ignore or just leave without being in a place where you can see it. Exactly. Now, if that's if you think you're going to be at an event at night and you're going to be busier doing things and you, and you don't think you can pay attention to, the, to these you know, open flames or even the enclosed flame with a candle. Fake candles have actually come a long way since when, when even when I started doing reenacting. You can get some really nice sort of LED candles that are made out of real wax to place about your encampment. Now, even if you want to have a couple of real candles to sort of give you the ambiance, but you want to fill in, you can fill in with the rest of these fake candles. And it will still, it won't be as nice, but it will still give you that, that sort of feel. And it's something that you don't have to pay that close of attention to because they don't get hot, they don't burn. It's, so, a tr it's a great way to put light in places where you don't have direct view of the light. So like you said, you don't want to leave an unattended flame inside a, a tent, but say you want there to be a light inside your tent so that when you get there at the end of your revels, you have enough light to go to bed by that isn't a, a, a lantern, like a, a flashlight lantern. You put that inside your tent. From the outside, through the actual canvas, it looks like there's firelight in there, but exactly. it's safe. And so... There are lanterns where, you know, there's paper lanterns where you can't actually see the flame directly. It it's softens the light enough that if you were to put those off in the distance in paper style lanterns, then sure, those those are fantastic additions. Uh, and they're not terribly expensive. They really aren't. No, they're not. Um, and like they said, for that little bit, of, just a little bit extra, um, you know, I, I don't even think you can get some of them for dollars like five bucks ten bucks or something like that so yeah they, they do add to it and they're, they're that safer that safer way of do, doing that but yeah so let's see what we got we got bed light we've got the cooking storage storage is the next big is another big thing and it would be another big ticket item storage is actually one of the last things that i sort of direct people to because Proper historical wooden chests and things, they, they take up space and they sometimes don't stack. You know, those, those nice, beautiful peak chests, they don't stack. So you got to have the room to be able to transport these and you know, keep them if that's what you want to use for storage. But they do, they, they're great because then you don't, instead of having to hide your storage, you're suddenly becoming a showpiece and a talk piece, a talking piece. So and they that double helps. as seats and benches. I the used my box. my box. I have a chest. It wasn't the most most accurate chest, but it looked good enough. And switched out some of the hardware on the outside, and and it passed sort of the six foot test. You know, you could tell six foot away it looked good enough. And it was a great seat. I didn't have to bring a chair when I had that chest because I just set the chest outside, and you sat on it when you needed a seat. So, so yeah, that I. Now, storage also includes water. You can mm. take your water from being hidden to being a, a showpiece just by switching up from plastic bottles to cooperage. And that's another one of those things that doesn't necessarily stack well, but looks great. And remember, barrels like that do also take a little care in feeding. Um, you always want to make sure that you're You've treated them and, and soaked them and, and done what they need to do so they don't dry out and suddenly leak on you because you don't want to have a, ba a barrel that you think is perfectly watertight and get a, you're going to put all your water in for an event. Suddenly you get to the event and it doesn't hold water at all. So, One great way to make sure that they stay water fast is prior to your event, a couple of days before, is to pre-soak them. 
Yep. A lot of what causes a wooden barrel, especially when you have a wooden barrel that's made with straps instead of metal bands, because there weren't that idea of that metal banded wine barrel look is a little post period. And you see that a lot of it's wrapped in cordage. And the method that they used to keep them watertight was not that they were built particularly tight. And they certainly weren't glued because you didn't want medieval glues and stuff to taint your water. They would just build them so that the slats were, they built them dry so that the slats would butt up against each other. And then when you poured water in them and the water soaked up into the planks, they would then press against each other to the point where they would just have enough friction that they were watertight. So if you pre-soak your barrel, even if you bring it with you dry, you'll, you're more likely not to lose any water that way. Exactly. And um, using, using things like barrels and candles and chests and everything, it, it all takes planning. And a lot, of, a lot of, like we said, you know, always test your things first. Always have a plan for what you're using these things for. That's probably the most important part of doing anything camping. You no know, glamping or or any normal type. I guess you wouldn't yeah. say normal, but like if you're going out in the woods in a, a modern context, planning first is is very important. And sure, the stakes may be a little lower if you're in a park and if everything goes terribly, you can just pack up and hit a hotel room. But again, that feels like a it feels like a failure. If it's a week long event, then that could be an incredibly financial that could be a make or break financial decision if you can't camp there because of some failure of planning and then you either have to choose to go home or spend a week paying for hotel rooms things like that you know prior planning prior planning prevents this poor performance that, that that could and you can lose you can lose property to poor planning things can break thing you know oh, yeah. you burn your tent down uh, you could lose life and limb that way so proper planning proper safety is important now at this point, I can't think of anything else that is both practical and that improves a camp. And at this point, I'm thinking of all these ways to really improve the medieval look of a camp that are almost entirely decorative. Can you think of anything else practical that would make practical. a glamp even glamorous, more glamorous? Uh, no, I, I think we've covered all the practical things. We've got cooking, we've got storage, we've got bed, we've got... Uh, chairs, tables, and no, I think everything else now is 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 going to lean towards just getting fancy. So yeah, let's wrap up with some of the just straight decorations. If you're if you're at this point where you're camping, either you've created an encampment that has all of this stuff, you, you've checked off every one of the boxes we've talked about, and you're still looking for things to buy. Either you're doing a you're doing an encampment at an SCA event, or you're going to a public display. You've reached the point where you have hit the pinnacle of definitely medieval wealth in an encampment. And at this point, you're free to buy just the fancy stuff because that's what that's what a medieval person who still has money to burn on their camp would start spending things on. And one of the, the ways that I think really is a top-notch method of, of decorating a camp is if you can get a second set of interior walls for your tent made out of some sort of fabric that is contrasting and expensive so silk walls are things that you could you know damask walls that you can make tapestry. and put up tapestries are a great things to hang up inside your tents as well there's a there are a number of popular extant tapestries that you can have reproduced at you know six feet long and three feet wide and you can hang up and they they may be printed or you can, I mean, you could have one woven, I suppose, depending on how much money you had to spend. But you can put tapestries up. Silk walls on the inside of a tent are great ones. You were talking about putting your armor on a bench. If you get yourself a really nice sort of tapestry-esque rug, now you have an armor blanket so you can keep yep. your armor up off of the grass. Rugs for the inside for the floor. Mm -hmm. Just It's another sort of comfort thing. Um, and some rugs come with, a like plastic backing so if the yep. ground gets wet the interior of your tent doesn't get wet exactly that's a good one too uh, but what it'll else? kill the grass really fast so make sure you're respectful of where you're camping if you <laughs> want to use something like that because that it won't take much more than a day or so of, of having that plastic backed stuff or putting if you put down a, a plastic tarp and then a blanket over the top of that 
it doesn't take long for that to kill the grass and leave a lot of big dead spots. So be respectful of where you're going if that's something you choose to do. And let's see, if you really want to start showing off banners, 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 everywhere, put them everywhere. All over the place. You know, the, the uh, one of the things I want to do on my tent next is actually to change the finials on top so that they have a little receptacle for a banner pole so that when I erect the tent, I can put little flags up on the top of the tent. Yeah. And you, I know some people like to border their encampment with rope and poles and things. And those are great places to put banners. You can even, you know, take the silk walls on the inside and bring it another step out and make patterned decorated canvas wall sections. I don't know. There's, there's a, it really depends on the situation, whether or not that's a, a historical item, but it's certainly a medieval looking item. If you have these short tent canvas walls that in, encircle your encampment. One of the most popular thing to do at SCA events, larger ones such as Penzik, uh, when you're actually sort of carving out your own space, and, and usually you're in, you're in a larger encampment with a number of people, and sort of carve out your own space for you and all these people as you build like wind walls and you, you place them around your, um, the exterior of the entirety of the camp uh, in sections. And I know people that have built one where they actually took artwork from like the marginalia of um, manuscripts and painted them along the, the edges of these wind walls that bordered their camp. And it, it, looked, it looked, yeah, maybe it was a little fantastical, but it, it just, it made it look nice. Yeah, that sounds, it sounds like it's visually stunning, if nothing else. Mm. And, if, and at some point, if that's the point of your encampment, is to be visually stunning and give a medieval look and feel, then, I mean, that's, that's a, how much more can you do than to take actual illumination imagery and, you know, period cartoons and, and make a reproduction of them in a way that everyone can see. It, it border, it definitely trends one way on the historical scale, but it certainly goes uh, another way in that look and feel scale, depending on where your balance point is. Another thing that I think is a great, I would consider it a luxury, like in an in upgrade that is, has no real practical use, is similar to that tent that you snuck into that one night, are structures that are not used except to be looked at, such as we at Days of Nights once put up a archer's lean-to, which was extra fabric, extra canvas that was set up and you, you put some material culture underneath it so it looks like there's four or five you know, low-status guys living in it, but no one actually sleeps there. None of that equipment belongs to anybody, is used by anybody. If you are able to put extra postrels and water bottles around, or you put... One thing I really want to do is, at some point, I want my encampment to include a saddle. I don't ride a horse. Oh, yeah. I don't have access to a horse. I'm physically capable of sitting a horse but I don't really know how to ride a horse to a, a, like a medieval knight's level. But to have next to the front door of my tent, like the saddle that would be put up onto my horse if we were to ride out that next day is another one of those luxury items that goes entirely for the sole purpose of increasing the look and status of the encampment and not incre increasing its practicality at all. Yeah, I think, I don't know, I can't think of anything else. That's a good one. I want to get a saddle too, basically for the same, for the same reasons. <laughs> yes. I mean, someday I want to get a saddle that I can actually put on a horse and I do plan on getting on a horse someday, but I suspect I'm much more likely to get a saddle that looks pretty long before I have access to a, an actual charismatic megafauna. So <laughs> I used to actually show horses. So, <laughs> Oh really? <laughs> I see, do. I, in, uh, in high school, I rode horses at, there was like a local ranch near where I grew up and, I remembered that I would ride Western and I, they had a, like a little shows like you could ride for performance. And I got sixth place in this performance, but I was tied for sixth place with all other 18 people who didn't get first through fifth. And I, <laughs> I talked to my trainer, but like, like, what did I do wrong? Like, I felt like I was doing really good. I want to improve because if I was doing it, I'm going to do it well. And they said, well, you were writing Western. You're never going to place. If you're writing Western, you got to write English. I said, okay, well then let me try writing English. I mean, I knew that things like Hunter and jumping existed. So there were things that I found compelling about English style, 
and the ranch told me, oh, but you're a boy. You can't write English. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So that was that was the the end of my I wasn't going to keep writing Western if I couldn't compete because exactly. I, I wasn't writing just for we'll, for fun. And we'll do a that was discussion. the end. We'll do a talk one of these times about uh, horsemanship as well. I think that could be a fun talk. So, yeah, I'd love but, to actually joust. That would be fantastic. Yeah, I, I've, I've never jousted myself, but I know a few who have. So, but. Yeah, so camping. Sorry, we, sorry, folks. We got a little. That's right. Off I'm topic. sorry. A walk down memory lane. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so that's glamping. There you go. Camping in a in a really large and fancy nutshell. We'll uh we'll see if we can get some pictures of some of the stuff we talked about, so people have ideas of you know what it is we're talking about, not just our descriptions of them, and put them up on the Facebook page uh, with the comments. I think that's all we've got for medieval glamping. Do you have anything else, Ari? I don't. That's really, I think I hit all my notes. Yeah, me too. So we really wanted to thank our listener, Rory T. I'm, I think it's Tassonye. I don't want to butcher your last name. Sorry, Rory. But we want to thank you for bringing this up on our Facebook page and saying this is something that he wanted to learn more about. We're going to do a couple more episodes about medieval camping, uh, different levels of it. So we always love hearing from you guys, and we love talking about what you guys want us to listen to. So reach out anytime through the Facebook page. Yes, and you can send us an email at howtomedieval at gmail.com. H-O-W-T-W-O-M-E-D-I-E-V-A-L at gmail.com. We read all the comments. We don't always have time to respond, but we definitely are building our show schedule based off of the things that you want to hear about. So email us, comment, like, and subscribe, share with your friends. You know, if you want to, and you like to camp in a way that puts Henry the King to shame, then give us five stars on whatever podcast platform you are listening to us on, and we'll catch you next time.